Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all of the people hung on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, hmm, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, as Mark taught, um, we saw Jesus riding in to Jerusalem on a colt. And when he comes in, we always have this image in our mind that Jesus enters into Jerusalem and there's people that are like, you know, dancing in the streets and they're, they're waving their hands and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the King that comes in the name of the Lord, because there are. Like there is this group of people, but sometimes we have the tendency to think that that was everybody and it really wasn't everybody. We saw very quickly in Mark's message that it should have been called, maybe as he said, more of the tension-filled in, uh, entry into Jerusalem instead of the triumphal entry because there is another group of people, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that are telling the disciples, the people that are dancing and singing and laying down their quotes, they tell Jesus, you need to tell your disciples to be quiet because that's not who you are. You're not the king. How could you ride in here like this? And in Jesus' response, he looks at them and he says, you know what? If I tell them to be quiet, then the stones will cry out my kingship. The stones will say, Hosanna. Now, if there's ever a time that you want to build some tension, go into a town that you don't live in, go to the people there and tell them that the rocks are smarter than they are. You know what I mean? Because that's in effect what Jesus is doing. He is saying, as Mark said last week, the rocks understand me and who I am better than you do. And Jesus heightens the tension. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't, he's not discouraged. He heightens the tension by what he says. And so there's something that I want us to see from this picture as we go into our teaching today. That Jesus rides into Jerusalem as king. And he also comes to the temple now as king. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Our text today, Luke chapter 19. And we're going to be starting here in verse 45. Luke 19, verse 45. And as you turn there, let me pray for us as we begin. Father... Um, I pray today, God, that you would speak, that you would show up in a magnificent, mighty way. Um, God, I pray that you would help us to see through the tension, through the chaos that we're seeing now as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, that he is not only king of Jerusalem, he's not only king of the temple, but he's the king of the world and he needs to be the king of our lives. And so, Father, I pray today, if there are people that are in this room, that you are not the king and the Lord of their life, through the person and work of Jesus' salvation on a wonderful cross, 
I pray that you would be today. I pray that you would remove the veil from their eyes. I pray that you would help them to see you for the very first time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By the way, if tonight is your first time, welcome. I forgot to say that a moment ago. We're glad that you're here and we're thankful that you're a part of our body tonight at Matthias Lot. So let's start here. Verse 45. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now there's something very important that we need to understand right off the bat. As Jesus enters into the temple, the temple that he's coming into is not like an over-glorified church building. You know what I'm saying? Like we imagine like a beautiful cathedral and we think about a cathedral as being something similar to a temple. But the reality is there's something very, very different. In a cathedral, in a church building, people gather together and they do teachings and they do worship. In the same way, people would gather together for teachings in the temple. But the distinction from the temple in a church building or from a cathedral is the temple had some very important functions. Two of those I want to talk to you about. Two very important functions. And if you have your notes, write these down. One of the first functions that the temple had was it was the place where people could come and they could meet God face to face. They could come and they could meet God face to face. Now you could say, well, what do you mean by that? Wasn't, wasn't God's presence everywhere in the world? Well, yes, God's presence was everywhere in the world. But the temple was the place specifically where people could come and they could experience the holiness of God face to face. The psalmist in um, Psalms chapter 27, I want to read a passage to you, verse 4, says this about coming and meeting God in the temple and experiencing face to face. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. You see, in the temple, there was what was called the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, and it dwelt in the inner courts. And so it was this way, if you think about it, when you like hear of someone, like you can, you can have the reputation of someone and you can know things about them as you hear about them from other people and as you maybe read about them in the paper or you see them on TV, on TV. but until you sit and you meet with someone face to face, you really have not experienced who they are. And in the temple, people would come and they would experience the holiness of God face to face. They would come and they would experience His Lordship. They would come and experience the fullness of His glory. It was powerful. It was mighty. For the priests that would go back, they would go back into the Holy of Holies once a year. And if the priest's hearts wasn't prepared, when they would go back, it would be the presence of God in the temple was so powerful that it would literally kill people. It was that strong. If you didn't come and your heart was not prepared. And so the temple's first function is that people would come and they would experience God. They would meet Him there face to face as they worshipped Him. Now the second very important function of the temple is this. The temple was the place where people would come and they would make sacrifice. The temple was the place where people would come and they would bring their offering 
the meat offering before the Lord and they would make sacrifice so that they can come into His presence and so that they could experience Him. Now you may be sitting there in the chair and you're saying, now wait a second, what kind of God is that that would make you, before you could come and you could see His face, that you would have to sacrifice some type of animal and you would have to make it bleed in order for you to be able to come into His presence? Is that really a loving God? Well, Timothy Keller says it this way. And and by the way, I want to say this. Um, I put the the references of some of my scripture um, sources of where I studied for this week in the bulletin. And Timothy Keller has influenced me a ton specifically in this message. And uh, there's a story that he shares in his message that I want to share with you to help you understand about the purpose of having to come and to make sacrifice. I want you to imagine this with me for a moment. If you imagine best with your eyes closed, do whatever you need to do. But imagine it this way. You've adopted a daughter and you spend your life loving this daughter and in putting your energy and your time into this daughter and she grows up and when she grows up you've been saving money that you are planning on giving to her so that she could go to college so that she could get her education so that she could make it on her own with the training and the time and the life that you've invested into her and so you send her off and a few weeks later you hear you find out She didn't go away to college. In fact, she went off to another place, to a distant city. And there in that city, she has taken all the savings, everything that you have been waiting on, saving, trying to wait to give to her. She's taken that money and she squandered it. She's spent it on frivolous living, on luxuries, on things that even you don't have or can't afford. And then one day, months later, after not even hearing from her, she comes back And you're working there, pretend you're, you know, you're working there in the kitchen, you're making dinner. And she comes and she sits down at your kitchen table. And she looks up at you and she says, how you doing, Mom? Good to see you, Dad. I know it's been a while, I just wanted, thought I would drop in and say hey and, and see how things were going. Now in that moment, when your child, your daughter, your adopted daughter sits down that you've loved and saved for for so long, as she sits down, Is it going to be business as usual? No. You're going to have to deal with the transgression. You're going to have to deal with the sin that has happened in their life. In the same way, when you think about God, God is a God of love, just in the same way that you imagine yourself loving your adopted daughter. But in the same way, you just cannot approach God any old way in the Old Testament or in the beginning of the New Testament before Jesus. Because sin had entered in, God had to make a temporal way where we could come before Him and we could deal with our sin so that we could come to the temple in His presence and so we could meet Him face to face. And the way that people would do that would be through the sacrifice of an animal. God was a loving God. God didn't even have to make a way for people to come and to make a sacrifice so that they could be in His presence and meet Him in the temple. God loves us and He provided a way for sacrifice. So now, get this in your mind. This is going to be important later on in the text. The temple's two functions are coming and meeting God face to face and being able to come and make a sacrifice before God so you could be in relationship with Him. Now, let's get back in here into, into the passage. If you see Jesus comes into the temple... And he does something. When he comes into the temple, 
he sees and he experiences some things. He comes into the temple area, also known the court of the Gentiles. And as he walks in, he sees cows. As he walks in, he sees sheep. He sees people selling doves. He sees money changers, people that were taking the Roman money and they were changing it into the Hebrew shekel, all inside the area of the temple. Now, if you're Jesus and you imagine yourself walking in, can you imagine the sights? Like, can you imagine walking in and seeing cows? Like, inside, like what if you would have walked in tonight? Seriously, and we'd have just been chilling with some cows, a couple of sheep. You know, no big deal. There's some doves flying up around in the ceiling. You know, Mark's over there selling some oil and I'm selling some salt, you know, trying to prepare people for the sacrifice. Like, can you imagine the smells that Jesus experiences as he walks in and he sees all the animals? Can you imagine the distracting sounds as you're hearing cows moo and, and sheeps doing the ba thing, you know? I mean, it's, it's noisy, And Jesus comes in, and not only are these men making these sales so that they can make a profit, but they're doing this inside the temple. Every time that money was changed, every time that they would exchange the money, the men that were doing the money changers, they were pocketing money. They were making a profit. They were making a profit inside the temple. Remember, the temple is supposed to be the place where you're coming and you're meeting God face to face. Not a heifer, you know, not a cow. A cow is a heifer, I think, I think that's right. You know? Like, it's not the place where you come to see doves fly around. It's the place where you come to experience God. Where you meet Him face to face. And where you make your sacrifice. And so Jesus comes in. And you know the Jesus that we've been teaching about? We've been teaching about a, passion, a passionate Jesus. But we've also been teaching about a Jesus that's humble. Because He is. We've been teaching about a Jesus that's meek. A Jesus that loves people. A Jesus that serves people. A Jesus that puts others before he puts himself because that was the pattern of life that he wanted us to live. But in this picture of Jesus, is that who you see? This is the moment, the first time in Scripture. Actually, it's not the first time. It's the second time because there's another temple cleansing. But in the temple cleansings, It's the only time that we see Jesus become aggressive. Check this out. If you read all of the Gospels, if you read the Synoptic Gospels, when Jesus comes in and he sees the money changers, when he comes in and he sees people selling sacrifices and making a profit, he turns over their tables. Jesus comes into the temple. He picks up tables and he throws them over. He sees the chairs that money changers are sitting on and he throws down the chairs. In John's account, in John chapter 2, the first time that Jesus came and cleansed the temple, when he first comes to Jerusalem, it says that Jesus makes a whip out of cords. Are you getting the picture? Jesus, the humble, meek, loving, passionate Jesus that we've been talking about, making a whip in the temple and then using that whip, and he is probably not hitting people, maybe hitting people, I don't know, but he's whipping, he's throwing the whip, and it says that he is driving people out of the temple. Jesus gets aggressive. Why? Why does Jesus all of a sudden get very actively passionate, so much so that he throws things And he makes a whip. 
and he snaps it, causing people to run away? I think it's a very important question. So let's wrestle with it. Why does Jesus respond this way? I think that the very next verse there that you'll see, let's look again. Verse 46, it is written, He said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. You see, Jesus in the temple, in the temple courts, it is the place where people are supposed to come and they're supposed to be engaging in authentic, relational connectivity with Christ. It's where they come and they meet God. So they're supposed to be coming. And as the passages it references to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, that passage, the passage that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, that passage is about the, the temple being a place where people come and they pray, and not just the Jews, but all nations. And so this temple area that we're talking about here, the temple court or the area of the Gentiles was supposed to be the place where not only the Jews could come and they could meet God and they could experience Him, but it was supposed to be the place for the Gentiles to come and to meet God and to experience Him too. And so the Gentiles come and they see the Jews here in the area of the Gentiles, in the court of the Gentiles, and they're making money off of the temple. They're making money, they're becoming religious, making money and making a profit off of God instead of seeing people really come and praying. Instead of really seeing evangelism happen as Jews tell their their Gentile neighbors about the love and about the goodness of God. Prayer is not happening. Relational connectivity with God. Confession. Praise is not happening. It's become very religious. Jesus cares deeply about distractions in worship. If you're taking notes, write that down. Jesus cares deeply about distractions in worship. You see, the issue was not that they were selling things. The issue was not that they were selling things so that people could have a sacrifice. Remember, God had made a way so that people could come into the temple and they could make sacrifices. The sacrifices needed to be able to be purchased so that people could come into the temple and make the sacrifice. And because Jews were coming from all over, they were coming from Rome and the surrounding areas, they would be coming with different money. And in order for them to be able to buy a sacrifice... To be able to buy a cow or to be able to buy sheep, they would have to come and they would have to have their money exchanged back into the Hebrew shekel so they could take the shekel and they could buy whatever animal they were going to sacrifice. And so you see, the commerce was actually necessary. Jesus does not come and condemn the commerce. What He comes and condemns is the place that commerce was happening. If it was happening outside of the temple courts... I don't even think that this would have made it here into our story. But it's happening inside the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles and the Jews could come and pray, and they could come and they could meet God and experience Him. Now, how does this today apply in our lives? Jesus cares deeply about your worship of Him. Jesus does not want you to be distracted from your prayer. He does not want you to be distracted from worship, distracted from evangelizing and sharing your faith. 
with people? How are we distracted? There's a ton of ways that we're distracted. Let me tell you a few. I've got a very close friend of mine, a business person, a woman who has done very, very well in St. Charles County. But check this out. When I talk to her about her faith and when I talk to her about her church, she has said more than one time that one of the reasons that she enjoys going to church is because it's a good, way, a good place for her to expand her business network in the community and to make more business contacts. If you come to church so that you can hand out your business card, you have allowed business to come too far into your temple. You have allowed something that should be left outside to come in and distract you from why you come to worship. Let me give you another example. When I first moved here to Missouri, I felt like I was supposed to be married. Now, I know that that may sound crazy, but I felt specifically like God was calling me to, to get married, and I knew that I needed to find a wife. So I showed up to the biggest church I could find, First Baptist Church of Harvester, which we have some people from that church. In fact, they were in our class, and they'll probably remember this a little bit. But I showed up, and praise be to God, like I met Heather, and we got married, and it's been a beautiful thing. Now, looking back on that, my intentions, my motivation, while God blessed and while God brought me a wife, the reason that I should have showed up to that church should have been to worship the King. It should have been to meet the Savior face to face, and God would have provided a wife for me in the end. But instead, I came to church looking for a relationship. If you've come into this place because there's a lot of single people, because you think that you might score a marriage out of the deal. Ladies, gentlemen, attractive people, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You have allowed relationship of other people to come too far into the temple. Your temple, the temple being your life as a life of worship. The church is obviously an expression of that. Let me tell you something else. There's a lot of times in the temple of our lives, in the temple of worship, as Christ is that, where we begin to get focused on so many things. Think about this. When Jesus walks in, it is absolute chaos in the temple. It is a busy marketplace. It's like schnooks with like a U.S. bank branch inside, you know, for the money changers. Like that's the comparison It's just people going everywhere. It's so hard to worship. Sometimes in our lives, when we allow good good things to make us so busy, ministries, other activities that we're involved with, people doing things with family, doing things with friends, some of us in here have a serious issue with overcommitting ourselves and getting so busy that our, our lives become like a literal marketplace and we don't spend time in prayer. We don't spend time worshiping the King because we're too busy. Whenever you've allowed good things to come too far into your personal walk and relationship with Christ that begin to take you away from reading the Word and from prayer prayer and from evangelizing and sharing your faith with people, You've allowed things to get in too far and it's time for Jesus to walk into your life and to start flipping stuff over. It's time for Jesus to come into your life and to make a whip and to drive out the stuff in your life that is not glorifying Him. Our lives are to be about worship. 
just like the temple was to be about worship. Let's keep reading here. Verse 47. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all of the people hung on his words. And so imagine this. We have the picture now. Jesus is continuing to teach. It says he's teaching every day. And as he's teaching, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, this group of people is like still like thinking of a way every day that they see Jesus. How can we kill him? How can we take him out? You want to hang him? You want to pop him over the head? Like, what should we do here? How are we going to get him? And the whole time, as they're thinking about doing this, they recognize that they can't do it. Why can't they do it? Well, obviously, no, we know that it's not time. It's not the time that God has ordained for Jesus to go to the cross and to make payment for sin. But the reason that God, what God is using for them to allow it to not be time is this group of people that are what? They're hanging on the words of Jesus. Now, for me, whenever I read Scripture, I don't know if any of you are like this, I'm pretty weird, but whenever I read Scripture, I see pictures. Like, I make mental pictures in my mind. The best way that I learn, I learn visually. So if I see pictures, it's helpful for me. That's why a lot of times when I teach, I use a lot of props and examples, because that's the way that I think. Now, in this moment, here's the picture that I have. Luke, oftentimes, when he writes, he writes about a crowd and he writes about people. And oftentimes in the crowd, he's talking about people that are favorable towards Christ and then people that don't like Jesus. But oftentimes, when he talks about people, he can be talking about people that are favorable to Christ more often than not. And so as he talks about these people that are hanging on the words of Jesus, what I picture is there are a group of people that have gotten caught up in the message of Christ. In that next verse, in chapter 20, verse 1, it says that Jesus is in there every day preaching the gospel. So I imagine a group of people that have connected with the gospel and they're interested. Maybe they haven't accepted Christ as king, but they're interested in the gospel. And the Pharisees, the teacher of the law, the lawyers, like they know this. They know there's people that are interested. But what it says is very astounding. It says that these people are hanging on the words of Christ. And so in my mind, this is the picture that I draw. I imagine a man, I imagine a rock climber. And there is a hundred foot rock that he is going to climb. And so he's brought a spotter with him. And they have the belay and all the things that you need to be able to climb the face of a rock. Some of you in here are experienced rock climbers. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And as this man climbs the rock, he reaches to the point at the very top where he reaches the plateau, the point where he's going to be able to reach his arm over and grab onto the top. And he'll be able to push himself up and he can stand at the very top of the rock and he can tell himself, I did it. I made it to the very top. And right at that moment, as he's about to put his arm up and stand on the top of the rock, his belay falls, his rope drops to the ground. And so he's hanging on to the very cliff of the rock, the place that's separating him from being at the top and living and falling all the way to the ground and dying. And so in your mind, do you picture the rock climber hanging there, 
The only thing that is separating him from life and from death is the grip that he has on the plateau of the rock. As you imagine that picture, can you imagine with me for a moment loving God's Word, listening to it in such a way where it's like you're hanging on it for life and for death. If you really know God's Word, if Jesus is really preaching the Gospel, then what He is preaching is, in fact, life and death. Either you receive it and you have eternal life, either you make it to the top of the rock, or you drop, you don't receive it, and you plummet to death eternal, completely separated from God. If you believed in the Gospel... If you really understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you understand that it's like hanging on the cliff of the rock? It's like life and death. If you saw the gospel that way, you would hang from it. And when I say hang from it, I mean when you read your Bible at night as you're going to bed, you would be able to read for more than 30 seconds before your eyes glaze over and you fall asleep. Because you would be holding it saying, this is life. The gospel's life. If you really were hanging on to it, hanging from the words of Christ, whenever you come in for a teaching and a pastor is preaching the word of God, you would be anticipating the next word, the next phrase, because you would be hungering God's word. You would long for it in community. You would want to talk about it. You would want to experience God's word is life. It brings life. The gospel is life. As we keep going here, chapter 20. One day, he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and they said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, well, why didn't you believe him? But if he say from men, then all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. And Jesus said, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And so again, Jesus is approached. This time, he is approached by who? Chief priests, the teachers of the law, together with the elders. So he's like, you know, approached here by the trifecta. And he's continuing to preach the gospel. And as they approach him, they ask a question. This should be a very obvious question, considering what Jesus just did. They approach Jesus and they say, uh, Jesus? Uh, By what authority are you doing what you're doing? By what authority are you saying the things that you say? By what authority did you just go into the temple a couple days ago and start kicking over the chairs of money changers? By what authority are you making whips and like chasing people around the temple, uh, Jesus? By what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus, because he's brilliant, because he's God, responds with the absolute best thing, the funniest thing that he could ever respond with. He looks back at them and he says, well, let me ask you a question. John, 
in his baptism, was it by men or was it from heaven? Now John the Baptist had the same type of obscure roots that Jesus did. John didn't have the credentials of a great rabbi where he had had all this training. John went out into the desert and he preached repentance. Jesus, in the same way, has come without all the formal training. He has come with some of the same obscure roots. Jesus has come teaching repentance and that people should follow God. And Jesus knows that if they are to answer this question, then they will answer their own question about Jesus. You see, there's only two ways that they can go. Now, the Pharisees, it's like they go back into their, like, their little group huddle. You know, I imagine like a huddle on a football field. And they go back and they start talking. And they say, the teachers of the law and the lawyers and the elders, they go back and they say, well, let's think about this here for a moment. If we come back to Jesus and we say, well, John's teaching or John's baptism, it was from heaven then the very next thing that Jesus could say is, why didn't you repent? Why weren't you baptized? If it was from heaven, if you really believe that it was God, then why don't you repent right now? And why don't you believe that John came to tell and foreshadow the way of me? That John came to prepare the way for me? So they can't answer that way. They realize that they can't answer that way. On the flip side of that, this is the other thought. They get together in their huddle and they say, if we come back and we say that it was from men, that John was baptizing people by men, it was in his own power and not in God's power, it was not by the power of heaven, but by the power of men, then all the people, and if you see that in the text, it says all of the people. Very interesting. Mark brought that out to me as we were talking through this text. It's everybody believed that John was a prophet. And so if they say that it was in fact by men, then all of the people are going to stone them, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they don't want to be stoned. And so this is what they do. They come back to Jesus and they say, well, we don't know. Not sure. <laughs> it's like they decide after they break the huddle, instead of like you know, trying to run for it or, or throw a pass, it's like they punt, you know, like trying to stay safe. And in their punt, in their saying, I don't know, they condemn themselves. Because in Jesus' response, we see the condemnation when he says, then neither will I tell you. Because Jesus knows their heart. Jesus knows they've had the opportunity to hear John. They've had the opportunity now to hear the gospel of Christ. And they've had the opportunity to respond, but they won't. And why won't they respond? They won't respond because they don't want to change their lives and follow Christ. And they won't respond because they care too much about what other people think. They too care too much about being stoned. Now, in the same way, like there are times when somebody asks you a question and if you respond by saying, I don't know, then it could be a good response, right? Like, let's just play a game. I ask you a question. I ask you, do you think that Tupac Shakur is alive? You say, I don't know. Some people say yes, some people say no. You say, I don't know, and I say, good answer. I don't either, you know. I kind of like to think he's alive. I don't really know. Let me, let me ask you another question. I ask you, what's my grandfather's name? You say, I don't know. 
you probably really don't know unless you've heard me talk about him. That's a good answer. And so I look back to you and I say, my grandpa's name is Elmer Zelmer. That's not a joke. That's serious. That's, that's for real. Mark gives me a hard time about that all the time when we talk about it. His name was Elmer Zelmer. He was in World War II. He's a stud. He's still alive. He has shrapnel on his head and his leg from a bomb. I wish all of you could meet him. But my grandpa's name was Elmer Zelmer. And so if you say, I don't know, I say, good response. There are times when saying, I don't know, is a horrible response. (laughs) When you say, I don't know, after you have been exposed to the gospel of Christ, not only after the rocks have cried out, but you've come into the worship gathering where you've grown up in a Christian home and you say, I don't know, Jesus. Jesus, I don't really know if you're God. If you make that statement because you know that if you are to say, yes, God, yes, Jesus, you are the Son of God and your power comes from Him. If you are to really say that, you know what it means? It means that you're going to have to take up your cross daily and you're going to have to follow Him. It means that you're going to have to change your life. And if you say, I don't know, because that's not the life that you want to live, then you've condemned yourself. Wrong answer. If you say, I don't know, because like the Pharisees, you're more concerned with popular opinion than you are with following God, then it's the wrong answer. They were too concerned with what people thought. Not enough concerned about what Christ thought. I don't know is not always a good answer. Right now, I I want to to take you back here for a moment um, as we get ready to to close up. Um, Jason O'Dell is going to come up. Jason, go ahead and come up, man. And he's going to lead us in a song here in a moment. But I want to talk about another reason. There, There were two reasons why I believe that Jesus came in and did what he did in the temple. And I only shared the first one with you, that I believe that they were too far in that they were distracting from worship because I believe that is one of the big things. But, but here's the second reason that I believe that Jesus makes a whip, that he begins to chase people around, that he begins to push people, knock over chairs, to flip tables inside the temple. I believe that Jesus, follow me here, is cleansing the temple because he's preparing us for the new temple. You get me here? He's preparing us for the new temple. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. John, chapter 19. Check this out. I'm sorry, John chapter 2, verse 19. Yes. Apologize. John chapter 2, verse 19. Let me read this verse to you. John chapter 2, verse 19 says this. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. This is after he's cleansed the temple for the first time in Jerusalem. But the Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Remember with me now, what are the functions of the temple? The functions of the temple are the place where you can come and you can meet God face to face and where you can come and where you can make sacrifice, blood sacrifice for sin. When Jesus makes this statement, He is saying something hugely profound about Himself. Here's what He says, I am coming to take the place of 
the temple. What does that mean? Jesus says, I am coming to be the gateway, to be the mediator where you can come and you can experience God face to face. You no longer have to go to the temple. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory that's inside of the Holy of Holies, that's protected by a curtain that is overwhelming, so overwhelming that it could kill you, that power is going to be released when Christ comes and He takes the place of the temple. When Jesus comes and He becomes the sacrifice on the cross for sin, this is what He does. In the garden, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and when they had sinned, they were pushed away from the presence of God. Do you remember this? And after they were pushed out of the garden, there was a flashing sword that was supposed to swing back and forth that would prevent them from going back into the garden, eating from the tree of life, and living living eternally in the presence of God. And here, Jesus is saying, when I come, I am going to take the place of the temple. I am going to come and that sword that is flashing in front of the garden, I'm going to fall upon it. And when I fall upon it, I'm going to break it so that you can come back in to the presence of God. Whenever I come and whenever I'm crucified, whenever I die on the cross for sin so that I can take your punishment, so you can be brought back into the presence of God, the veil is going to be torn. And now you will be able to experience the fullness of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus comes and He fulfills the function of the temple by being the face, by being the place where we meet God and we worship Him. And by making the sacrifice, can you imagine having to come in here tonight and before you came in, having to purchase a cow so that you could have walked in and you could have made a blood sacrifice so that you could sit down with your Father and be in relationship with Him. Jesus comes, makes payment for your sin once and for all so that you can come in here and you can confess to Him directly so that you can worship and so we can worship tonight in the presence of God Most High. In the glory of God, as Jesus resides in your heart and in your life, the power of the temple exists in your life because Jesus lives in your life. And you've become the temple. Do you guys see this? Can we get excited about Christ tonight? Does that get a little bit exciting up in here? Tonight, Jason's going to play a song. In the song that he's going to play, the words to it are on the bulletin that you have, the insert with the, have the music on it. As he leads us in this song, and as you think about what Christ has accomplished, as he's come and taken the place of us needing a temple, could you think about these words? And then Mark's going to come, and he's going to lead us into communion. But your response tonight, as you prepare your heart for communion, could you think about Christ? And could you think about what Jesus is doing as the tension is building and building and building in Jerusalem? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would do something magnificent in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to see that you have come in the person of Christ. You've sent your son, Jesus, to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. 
so that punks like us don't have to go to the temple and kill an animal, but we can receive your work from the cross in our lives and we can follow you and we can be forgiven. And when you see us, God, you see Jesus. You see blameless people that are seeking to know you. God, I pray that you would help us to see that Christ has done the work. And now we get to sit here as being a part of his covenant, a part of your covenant, and we get to worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.